ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present The VC Show with eight-time NBA All-Star Vince Carter and co-host Roz Goldenwoode, who talk all things basketball with some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. They'll give their unfiltered thoughts on the NBA, and Vince will share stories from his illustrious 22-year career. That's The VC Show. Listen where you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's it's an astute question. Um, Gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right (laughs) to agree to to this. Hi, my name is Brian Winhorst. My dilemma is I'm having an absolutely horrible summer and fall playing golf. I didn't play like for eight weeks in the early spring and summer because I was on the road with the playoffs and I have never been able to get back into rhythm after that. It's like the worst I've played since I was like 13 years old. I have two like two day golf trips coming up and I really should cancel them. But this is just like, you know, you're just squeezing the last little bit out before, you know, the, the cold weather comes. I really know that for my mental health, I should just not play. I should just say, hey, I something came up. I got to go to Oklahoma City. Got to cancel. Okay, so I'd never encourage quitting, especially not when it comes to golf, because I feel like that's something that many people still find fun and still do somehow, even as they're pulling out their hair and throwing their clubs and, and bemoaning their scores. So canceling your trips and quitting ain't the answer. Um the answer comes from an old Mad TV sketch. Yeah, just set some expectations before your next round that are actually achievable. Not your best round, not even close actually, just a mid-range score, couple shots you're proud of. Uh, deep down, of course, you'll still know that you could be better and that you've been better in the past, but you've set an intention and you've promised to consider the outing a success if you meet that intention. So it's like the start of like a yoga or a Pilates class that I go to when I feel like shit. I just, when they say at the top, you know, think of an intention to get you through the tough times. I just declare my intention to be showing up, maybe getting a good sweat, hopefully taking my mind off other things. Your day on the links could be that simple. The answer is that simple. That's what she said. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Today's guest is my ESPN colleague, Brian Windhorse, one of the smartest NBA minds, one of the best, most honest and thoughtful NBA reporters out there. You could see him all over ESPN from SportsCenter to Get Up, First Take to NBA Today, Hoop Streams. He's the host of the Brian Windhorse and the Hoop Collective podcast, which is an absolute must listen if you're an NBA fan. Also the author of three NBA books, including 2019's LeBron Inc. The Making of a Billion Dollar Athlete. And yes, Brian Windhorst will always be connected in NBA fans' minds 
to LeBron James and try as I might to make this podcast about Brian Windhorse, he wanted to talk about LeBron James, who has been the focus of his work for many decades, dating back to the high school they both went to in Akron, Ohio. Uh, so we're going to get LeBron content and we'll get into what it's like to be forever connected to a legend, the early days of LeBron, his relationship with LeBron now. Uh, we also do talk about Brian, his near-death experience, his uh, getting the kind of hate that's reserved usually only for athletes. Uh, we'll talk about his viral moment and how aggregation was the key to understanding that viral moment. Also, how journalism in the NBA is changing with the times, including needing to be able to understand and report on mental health, uh, which is relatively new for the sport. Hope you love the convo. That's what she said. <laughs> I can't believe I've waited this long to have the great Brian Windhorst on this podcast. There are so many things I want to talk about, and I want to just get out ahead of things, Brian, and tell you that there will be a LeBron James speed round. Uh, mm. I know you're sick of being asked about LeBron James, but the good news is about a speed round is that, in theory, we will try to get most of the LeBron in one small chunk and spend the rest of the podcast actually talking <laughs> about you. As people want to hear about LeBron. Most people <laughs> who talk do. to me want to hear about LeBron. It's okay. But I want to hear about he you, okay? He is more interesting than me. I feel like this is going to turn into a therapy session. Brian, you're worth hearing about. No, I know this. I mean, you know, I'm a realist, Sarah. Uh, you know, people are interested in him. They should be. Thank goodness. It's a billion-dollar industry. Yeah, it's worked out well for you. Although there have been interesting responses to your career and your connections to LeBron that we will get into. But I want to go back to the beginning and some of how that mirroring and paralleling of lives uh, came about. And that is because you grew up in Akron, Ohio, which famously is also the hometown of LeBron. What kind of kid were you when you were uh, growing up in Akron? Do you, when you like read biographies, do you hate how they always started their childhood? No, I actually love it because I find that mm. people skip over that and they get right to their successes and I want the things we already know about. And I think a lot of times the fascinating <laughs> parts of how people become who they are are deeply rooted in their youth. And so sometimes they say I something so. that I'm like, hmm, tell me more about how your dad was never home or your sister was a <laughs> world-class figure skater and you didn't know what to be. Yeah. You know, you just never know. Well, um, I read, the, you know, Phil Knight, the, the founder of Nike, he wrote this biography, which is regarded as one of the, I guess, autobiography uh, called Shoe Dog. Yeah. And he spends like, it is a very good book, by the way, but he spends like, chapter after chapter about how he like got funding to make payroll like in his third year and then he gets like to where nike like is having success and like accused of sweatshops and he covers it all in like three paragraphs perfect like like the first two years of nike took 300 pages the last like 15 took like 30 pages that's why you write an um, autobiography because then you get to decide <laughs> right. what you want to write about. i guess so i guess so <laughs> Um, you know, I grew up, my mother was a, a, a Catholic nun. It's probably redundant. There probably aren't non-Catholic <laughs> nuns. She was a nun and she had me. And it was a scandal. No, I'm just kidding. Um, she was a nun for nine years and left um, the convent, as they say, before I was born and got married. So did I was raised. Father? And that was the inspiration or did she leave and then? Wouldn't find you like to know? I would love to know. No, they, they met later, but. I feel like there's untold stories that I right. don't know, you know, right. that I'm never going right. to know. Um, that's an interesting fact. Behind me. But she became a teacher after she was a nun and she taught at St. Vincent, St. Mary. She, she she really taught when it was just St. Mary before it was even a combined um, parochial school. 
Uh, but she taught at St. Vincent St. Mary for 44, 45 years, something like that. Some, somewhere in the mid 40s in terms of years. And, um, you know, so and she was a softball coach for 20 some years and she was a successful coach. She won a couple of state championships, That's you know. Great. And so I grew up like being a gym rat um, at St. Vincent St. Mary. Uh, you know, my wardrobe was my Catholic school uniform and St. Vincent St. Mary gear. That was the two things I wore. So like <laughs> I went to football games and obviously the softball games and basketball games my entire childhood. They didn't have a grade school. I just had a high school. But um, so like by the time I was 18 years old, you know, and I graduated, like it was all you know, and I was very immersed in the sports at the school. I, I played on the golf team, which, you know, people laugh about, but what do you want me to say? I played on the golf That's team. That's why your best years were around that three, age. <laughs> Three-year letter winner. Thank you. Whoa, nice. Um, I kept uh, stats for the football team, uh, and I kept the book, uh, the scorebook for the uh, girls' basketball team, which won the state championship my junior year, one of the highlights in my uh, amazing my high school years. And then uh, in the spring, I, I was the scorebook keeper for the softball team. And so I was, you know, that's kind of where I got my start in like reporting. I wasn't a good athlete, obviously, but uh, my sister was a good athlete. She played college softball. She was a star player. Um, but um, so you, you can imagine when LeBron James comes along, I was um, 21 or maybe 20. Maybe I hadn't quite had my 20. Maybe I was 21. And um, so, like, you know, I was certainly very tied into the sports teams and certainly knew the whole history and knew all the people and, and you know, was very tied into the school, you know, as I had been for my yeah. entire life. So, you know, that's sort of the backdrop. You know, people ask me how I got to know LeBron James. I was around. I mean, there's, there was nobody at St. Vincent, St. Mary in those years that was a, a star athlete that I wasn't going to know. Yeah. You know, if I wasn't, you know, close to them, I was going to at least know them. And so, um, you know, that's that's the background. But and, you, were also you know, a sports devotee, like you were already, it appears, invested yeah, clearly. in doing yeah. the work of not just loving to play, which a lot of kids do, but maybe because you weren't proficient at all of them, finding a way to be around it as much as possible without playing. And that sets you up to be a documenter of him other than just someone who who knew of him. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, this is the type of nerd I was as a kid. So, God, I'm, I don't know about you, Sarah. I, I feel my age all the time now. Uh, especially lately. Um, yeah, I used to feel a slight connection to young people, and now I feel like a, a deep nah, I divide. Mean, I was I was never cool, <laughs> so it's easy for me to break that. But, like, you know, when I was – when I was right now, if you want to know what anybody in baseball – is batting you can find out in five tenths of a second if you want to know how, how many home runs and rbis they have it's very simple well back in those days they only ran the team stats for the cleveland indians once a week on sundays in the newspaper i didn't want to wait i wanted to know how many home runs joe carter and how many rbis joe carter had every single day so i used to keep their basic stats like, you know, you know, and, and even by the time I was like in high school, they would put that in, in the actual yeah. box scores. You would know yeah. how many RBIs that everybody had. Yeah. Yes, I know. <laughs> so this is the kind of kid that I was. Okay. So you were I destined kept the for this, stats, which I then, guess. you know, it checks out because 
LeBron James comes around a couple years after you at St. Vincent St. Mary High School. Um, by that point, you have graduated Kent State, uh, or did he no, start still, there right while you were still still there? I was still at Kent State, and I had I had been working part time for the Akron Beacon Journal, and um, so that included like taking the scores over the phone at night, and then occasionally they would let me go out and cover some games, some low level games, you know that the main full reporters didn't want to go to, you know, far flung games or, you know, lower level games. And so LeBron's first game of his freshman year, I mean, I have to say that, you know, St. V as they call it, we weren't good at basketball. Like I think in the early eighties, they had a couple of uh, good teams, but they were not known as being good at basketball. My senior year, you know, I graduated in 96. LeBron came in 99. So my senior year, the team was three and seventeen. The best player on the team was a five ten white guy, and <laughs> that's never good. <laughs> you know, when, when your best player is five ten. Uh, obviously, there's five ten guys who made the NBA, but this guy, with all due respect, was not going to be one of them. So, it was not historically a, a good team. And so, um, when these guys came, and I have to say, you know, I don't know if this is known about the LeBron story, what he did, and how he got to that school. I mean, do you know the story how he got to that school? Um, a little bit, but I don't think a lot of the listeners will. So give us the. I don't know. I mean, I, I of course know, but you tell yeah, me. Give tell us, me. give us the abridged version. He has this friend, and he's actually an assistant coach in, in in college now, Drew Joyce. When Drew Joyce was fourteen years old, Sarah, I'm not kidding you. He was five foot one, five foot two. <laughs> he was one of the smallest kids you would, smallest boys you would ever see coming into high school, much less trying to play basketball. And LeBron lived, you know, a short distance away from the, he lived in the district of the high school that had the best basketball team historically in the city. There was eight high schools in the city. And of those eight high schools, this district that he lived in had the best team. It was, it made sense that he would go play there and be a star there. That's when you could see that coming for years. LeBron loved Drew, though, to this day, he loves Drew. He was his close friend. And I could go on and on here about how, you know, LeBron didn't have many, didn't have a family really growing up. And so didn't have much relatives. He was moving all the time, didn't have roots. And so he formed relationships with his basketball teammates. And he wanted to be liked by his basketball teammates. So he shared the ball mm-hmm. because he wanted to be friends with them. I mean, I could go on and on to a psychological evaluation. I'm not going to go any further than that. But he really liked Drew People a lot. can read the franchise, LeBron James, and the remaking of the yeah. Cleveland Cavaliers from 2007 okay. <laughs> if they want all of the basketball. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the times in there. Yeah. So, um, and this coach at Bookdoll High School, where he would have gone, was like, you know, you know, Drew's not going to be able to play for me on the varsity. Mm. And um, in fact, Drew's dad, who's now the court at St. Vincent St. Mary, is named after Drew's dad because Drew's dad has become the coach and led them to many state championships. The the the, the gym itself is named after LeBron, but the court is named after. Drew Joyce, his father, Drew, Drew Joyce II, he was coached at Bookdoll. He says, well, you know, my son is good enough to play. You shouldn't, you know, rule him out until you see him play. And he goes, yeah, I'm not putting a 5'2 guy on varsity. Wow. So they went over to the place where the coach, Keith Dambrock, who's now the head coach at uh, Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, he said, uh, you can play for me. And so it was one of the most important things that ever happened to that high school, one of the most important things that ever happened to Keith Dambrock. And five foot two Drew Joyce brought LeBron James to that wow. school. 
And, um, you know, I always tell the story about his first game. His first game I covered because nobody cared about Saint basketball. None of the main reporters gave them any mind because they weren't good. And, of course, I knew that there were these good players, these good freshmen who'd come in. I'd heard this, you know, these stories about these players. So I was going to go to the game anyway. So I went to the game to cover it as a, as a reporter for the Akron Beacon Journal as a part-time, still-in-college uh, reporter. And LeBron started, and I remember the next day Cincinnati was playing in a, in a game in Cleveland at the Cavs Arena. There was like one of these, you know, tournaments where they, you know, two games, four teams. I don't remember who Cincinnati was playing, but they were there. And so Cincinnati was in town. So I remember Bob Huggins. He was the coach at Cincinnati at the time. Bob Huggins was in the was in the crowd. I remember thinking, wow, Bob Huggins comes to see this guy because you know the, the word was kind of already out a little bit on LeBron. And but what I remember is Drew Joyce. So midway through the first quarter, they send this guy into the game. And Sarah, I'm telling you, and that was back when they wore baggy shorts, just in general, back in that era. I'm telling you, the shorts went down <laughs> to the middle of his yeah. shins. I'm yeah. not even kidding you. <laughs> and um, uh, LeBron was about six three ish. I don't know how much he weighed. He was very much of a baby face. He was very bony. Uh, he moved like a gazelle, <laughs> but he was very bony and he, he looked good, but he had 15 points. It was, you know, it was a good game, but you didn't, it didn't blow you away. But what I remember is this little five foot two kid coming into the game and his first time down, of course, they ran a play right at him and the kid took a shot from the school they were playing and they were on the road. It was a road game and, you know, people were laughing at him. I mean, I was, <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was almost like a joke and like, I'm not even criticizing the guy from Bookdale. This guy's got a successful program. He's like, look, the kid can play for the freshman team. Call me back when he cracks, you know, 5'5", right. five, five, you right. know. And so the first time down, um, he puts, he drew, puts his hand up in the guy's face best he can. Guy misses. They go down the court. First possession, LeBron's got the ball. First possession of his, of Drew's high school career, LeBron throws him a pass. Three-pointer from the corner. Bam. Love okay. it. That is the yeah, Genesis of the James story. That's so great. And that's so great. I know you want to ask me about something else, but I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you one of the greatest moments I've seen. I've covered the NBA for 20 years. I am 44 years old. Probably my favorite moment. As I am beginning to tell you this story, the goosebumps are raising on my skin. <laughs> state championship game. Freshman year. LeBron's play in the state tournament weekend was it blew everybody away. They walked away with their jaws on the floor, okay? Kind of like everybody was with Victor Wembayama recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine that in the incubator of uh, Ohio State's basketball arena, okay, for LeBron James. But in the state championship game, little Drew Joyce went seven of seven uh. on three-point shots. And nobody knew anything about this team. It was a it was a fifteen thousand people there, and they just oh this is just this team from Akron, okay. That's amazing. And they go, who's this little kid running out there? And I'm telling you, Sarah, when the seventh one was in the air, the crowd exploded as that one <laughs> went through the basket. So um, that is the genesis of where I got to know LeBron James because nobody wanted to cover that team. Even yeah. When they were seven and zero, eight and zero, eleven and zero, they were like, eh, they're not playing anybody. 
I mean, you know, later on they were like playing, you know, in California, you know, you know, they were on national television right. later on. But later on, LeBron's <laughs> on the cover of SI while still yeah, there yeah, and yeah, people yeah. suddenly are interested. Seriously. But I want to ask you that because yeah, of that, did, did LeBron at that age understand the difference and, and that you were covering it? Did that affect your early years relationship? Did he seem to have an affinity or loyalty to you because you were there? Or was it solely just, you know the guy best because you've been there from the beginning? Like, was there actually an intention on LeBron's end that helped create and forge this connection? I don't think it ever, like, was framed that way for either of us. I was just around. And, you know, I was around... You know, his first year with the Cavs, it was my first year on the beat. You know, when he moved away from home for the first time to Miami, I moved away from home for the first time. I mean, I don't mean like my house, but I mean like right. from where I'm from to Miami for the first time. We were we were existing on parallel tracks. Yeah. We could see, could see each other. Yeah. But I was never like invited over for Thanksgiving dinner. Nor, yeah. by the way, did I, did I seek that. Right, um, right. And you know, you've talked there, about that. You talked to him yeah. in the locker room, in the hallways, in the spaces yeah. that made sense. You guys weren't sitting having cigars and telling each other life yeah, secrets. I mean, and I think a know, lot of people had, confuse that sometimes, depending on, because those relationships do exist for some reporters and athletes. Yes, this is not a Mahmoud Rashad, uh, Michael Jordan. <laughs> uh, I'm not on the private jet. You, um, you didn't end you know, up in one of the worst best men uh, pictures of all time. And if people had, don't know uh, that, go look it up. <laughs> yeah, he had my mom for a couple of classes. You know, I knew his mom. I mean, I knew his mom when she was living in the projects, you know, like basically taking charity to right. get by. Yeah. So he knows my mom. I know his mom. I mean, that's my sister was a year in front of him. He knew my sister. I mean, you know, anybody who has a relationship with somebody who you've known since they were 14 years old, it's going to be different than if you show up when he's 19 right. as an international star. Right. But it didn't, I mean, we don't have a special relationship. We just have a long relationship. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. And I know you said recently on a podcast, uh, a lot of communication is sort of gone because you don't cover the Lakers a lot. They're not a very good team. Uh, and there's no reason to be just texting for fun, uh, well, which I think yeah, surprises some people. <laughs> yeah, they didn't, I mean... The year that the Lakers were really good, which is when I would have covered them, was in the bubble where I wasn't mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And yeah. they haven't been really that, you know, the next year there was no access to players really except over Zoom. Mm -hmm. And then last year the Lakers were a huge disappointment. Right. So, you know, since the pandemic, I basically haven't really covered him that much. I've been, I've been doing other things and he's frankly doing a lot of other things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's go back. So so you start covering him. You're doing that work early on for for the Akron Beacon Journal. And then um, you start traveling. You become a very young traveling beat writer. You write your first book about him in 07, the one I, I mentioned yeah. already. And you sort of do become associated with the guy who's the LeBron whisperer, the guy who covers LeBron and his, his exploits with the Cavs. Um, you left for ESPN, but the same year that you left 
for ESPN after spending five years with the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, sorry, you left for uh, the Plain Dealer before ESPN. Uh, you yeah. spent five years. You're 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 settled in there. You make this uh, move um, in October, but right before that, you have an in- incredible health scare, and that yeah. that sounds like quite a year to me to have a, a job that you've been at for all of your at that point career um, have this major health scare and then make the move. Was the move connected at all, or was that um, completely serendipitous that that you recover and then decide to switch gigs? I switched gigs. I went to the plane dealer after the health scare. Yeah. Was uh, it, it was, was it because of that? No, it, I had actually already interviewed with them yeah. before that happened. <laughs> Once I woke up from the coma, I was like, I wonder if they're going to hire me. Uh, <laughs> so you'd been talking to them. Because that's what I was they curious. Did. Sometimes people have those uh, moments in life, lightning bolt moments, they're sometimes called, where they say, okay, I'm doing something else now because this was a, a, a wake-up call. Let's go back to the to the coma the aforementioned coma yeah. um and tell people what <laughs> happened in june of 2008 you're in your 20s 30s what, yeah i was i'm bad I at math was, i was i was 30 i was actually yeah. 30 yeah i had i just i felt terrible all season long i had had several different like strange illnesses like multiple ear infections you don't have ear infections when you're 30 right you know i was having like tonsillitis um which again you don't have when you're 30 and um I was actually about to have my tonsils out because I was just having just so many issues. And like, okay, we're going to take your tonsils out. And basically I just, um, I almost, I, I, I went to the hospital and like, I, you know, I, I'll, you know, they kept, they kept running tests on me and they kept, the results kept showing worse and worse. Hmm. And, um, it's terrifying. And, uh, I went, I remember at one point I went in to have a CAT scan. I mean, I say went in, I was in the hospital. And uh, they took me down to get a CAT scan. And, um, it, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that, but it's like a big giant ring, like almost like a donut. And, yeah. you know, zipper, you know, they bring you in there. And so um, I, the, the nurse who was kind of with me was a, a, a guy and he goes, I'm going to be honest with you, Brian, it doesn't look too good. <laughs> oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So they, they took me immediately to um, the ICU. And, um, I was in the ICU and I was just, you know, without going into too much boring detail, like I was, I was failing hmm. and this doctor you lost comes half in. of your blood. Yes. I was missing half the blood in my body. Yeah. That, that yeah. doesn't sound sustainable. Yeah. Where did it go? Where did it yeah. go, Sarah? That's the Where question. Where did it asking. go? Where did it go? That was a big, big thing that they were working on at that time. Wow. And uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they, they run your, uh, you know, take a blood test and they can tell how much blood you have in your body. And like, um, there's a, it's a hemoglobin count. I don't think we need to go into too much detail, but like uh, the hemoglobin is supposed to be a certain level and I had half. Um, Mm. So they're like, "Uh, not good. And so um, this, at one point, this doctor in ER leaned over me and goes, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, uh, maybe have you go to sleep for a little bit so, so that you can breathe better, which, you know, now we, you know, I didn't understand what he was doing because they were telling me they were going to intubate me. I mean, in the, yeah. in the wake of, um, you know, everything with COVID, you know, where we all learned a lot about, you know, ventilators and innovations. Like I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what he was yeah. saying. What he was saying is we're about to put you on life support. Yeah. Cause so, with, I mean, if you have half your blood, I imagine like your organs will shut down. Your heart won't yeah. be able to pump. Like you, you won't yeah, be able to stay good, alive. It was not a good situation. So yeah, yeah, I was, um, I was in a coma for like 21 days. Oh my take. God. I don't know exactly how long, but, uh, 
it took a while for them to figure out what was wrong with me. It was a rare condition, but it was a condition that is um, treatable. Mm. So I was uh, a very unfortunate that I got this. It's not something that I caught. It's just, it's just, a, it's a condition. Um, and like genetically you can have it, but it sort of just hovers it's and then not even, it's not even genetic. I can still oh. remember that, you know, when they woke, when I woke up and like, it, it, by the way, you don't just wake up and come out of the coma. Like you're in the coma and then you open your eyes and you know, you say, I'll have some ice cream. Like it takes like days to wake up. Um, hmm. I wish I could tell you what I, um, what I thought when I realized it like three weeks had passed, but I don't remember because it didn't happen in one moment. But I totally missed all of the NBA draft and free agency. And when you are down for that long, they don't know whether or not you're going to cognitively snap back. And that was the summer um, that the, if you really want to go into NBA transactions, that the <laughs> 76ers um, signed Elton Brandt. And um, like the, the second or third day um, that I was coming out of the coma, they let Terry Pluto, who was the columnist at the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, who had, I'd written my first book with and, you know, we had a good relationship. He came in and was sitting with me in the ICU and telling me all of the transactions that happened in the NBA. Like, oh, uh, this team did this, this team did this right. on draft night, this team did this. And I was like listening to all of them. And he goes, and the Sixers signed Dalton Brand to a five-year, $80 million contract. <laughs> and I said, I don't think they've got the cap space for that because of, I'm, because of Andre Iguodala's cap hold. <laughs> and when I said that, they knew. They were like, oh my gosh. He's, he's back. The, he's, he's back. Talking, <laughs> he's talking about the 76ers cap position. Um, it's uh, going to be you know, okay. They That's hadn't great. told me that they had traded away Calvin Booth to create That's cap space. Super so, important. I can't believe it's not the yeah. first thing he said at your bedside. <laughs> that should yeah, have been so issue number one. Once um, that happened, they knew that I was uh, going to recover. But yeah, so, so that Did was you the, have a moment a, because of that? I know it's cliche, and actually, I've definitely heard people say it's hard to continue that feeling. No matter how much you think it will stick around forever, those moments of gratitude and live in the moment and everything else. Did you feel different after that incident than you did before, and how long did that last? Not necessarily. I mean, I think, the, you know, I think the different people are going to have, are going to feel it different ways. To be honest with you, it was like, you know, early August, and I needed to my goal was like, okay, I need to be back on my feet in time for the season. And, um, I made it to opening night. It was ring night. The Celtics had just won the title the summer before with Garnett and Pierce and yeah, Ray Allen. Three amigos. And so, and so the, um, Cavs were there for ring night cause they had had a seven game series the season before. And I was sitting in the press room, uh, about 25, 30 minutes before the game. And I feel a hand on my shoulder and I turn around and it was David Stern. Hmm. And David goes, "Hey, I'm really glad to see you. I thought we, I thought you were, we were going to lose you. We had a pleasant interaction. And out of the, I don't know, 12 or 14 years, I knew David Stern. It was, it was probably the only pleasant interaction we had because there were plenty <laughs> of other times where he tissed tissed me. Yeah, or, uh, you know, gave me the side eye. But um, you know, that, that seems nice to happen thing. a lot too. People have a lot of stories <laughs> about running into someone that they don't get along with and being like, well, first they were like, hey, I'm glad you didn't die. And then went back to cold again. But at least in that moment, they were like, yeah, we had a, well, we had a moment. <laughs> I came to like the second or third practice and I was like probably a hundred feet away from the player's parking lot and LeBron was pulling out. And I remember 
he was, you know, in like some Ferrari and he slammed on his brakes and slammed, and slammed the car in reverse and backed up and got out of the car and like grabbed me and was like, oh, um, you nice. know, wanted to know how I was doing and everything. Again, not something that happens on a regular basis. Right. Um, you know, there was another time where like my mom had gotten sick and had to go to the hospital. I was, this was when I was in Miami. She ended up being fine, but I had to fly to Miami. I mean, I had to fly from Miami back to home to make sure she was okay. And I caught up with a team like three days later and, you know, LeBron grabbed me and said, Hey, is your mom? Okay. So like, you know, those are the things that, you know, when you know somebody for a long time, whether or not you're quote unquote friends with them, you know, you operate and live in the same space. And so when you have moments like that, that's where you sort of can connect on a personal level. For sure. um, You know, it didn't really change anything. I did get the job with the plane dealer. Um, it's good. But would have uh, been would have been a real dick move of them yeah. to uh, <laughs> to not well, give it to you after yeah, that. I mean, they were like, "Well, you didn't follow up on our request for a second interview." <laughs> you never filled out that application. Well, um, if you haven't been in a coma, we're still looking. <laughs> oh, you were okay. Yeah, um, uh, so yeah. you get that job. You're there for yeah. um, you're there for two years, and then yeah. um, you end up co- uh, moving to ESPN in, in 2010. Yeah. You start with ESPN uh, to cover LeBron as he heads to his new team, the Heat, and everybody remembers that ESPN's dedication to that team, the Heatles, yeah. and the Heat Index, its own website, and everything else was so over the top, but but deservedly, people were very interested in LeBron and very interested in that team. So that became the beat for you. You had been sort of on the LeBron beat, but it continues. And this time you move for it. I was fascinated to read an interview with you where you said, you know, you, you left Cleveland to go cover him in Miami. That's the job that's required of you. And when you went back to Cleveland, fans like threw stuff at you or said awful yeah. things to you. I'm trying to, I, I, I'm not trying to get you to explain fans because Lord knows we never can. It's fanatics for a reason. But what is the psyche there? What is the impetus there for being angry with you for covering LeBron in Miami? It was not a happy time, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, but, you know, she was in law school. You know, she was locked into three years of law school at Ohio State. And I was moving to Florida. That was hard. I left the plane dealer. I left the plane dealer, a job that I loved, to go to Miami. And nobody wanted us in Miami. The Heat didn't want us there. Uh, I mean, the Heat are one hundred percent professionals. I, I can't. I um, I can't speak enough about my admiration for the Miami Heat organization. Yeah. Um, I have. They just Heat culture, baby. It's a real thing. I, I really, really, really do. Uh, I really, really respect them, admire them. But like, they didn't want us there. You know, we were a pain in their ass. Um, LeBron was angry at ESPN because of the way the decision went down. He was doing ESPN 0% favors. And, like, despite our relationship, like, it wasn't even personal. It was just like, look, I'm not dealing with you. Uh, Now, he did all the interviews as far as, like, you know, the availability is because the Heat had that standard, you know. But it was just like he wasn't interested in it. So, I was getting roasted at home for quote unquote following LeBron and, you know, destroyed, you know, my, I I basically, I shut down, you know, I haven't had Facebook since, uh, now of course you could probably go find a Facebook page, you know, that gets up that that you would get updated, but like, it was just a, it was a professional Facebook page. I never, I didn't even have a password, but I, I shut down my personal Facebook page in 2010 because I didn't want my family 
to continue to see stuff that people were saying to me. So I haven't had a Facebook. I haven't used Facebook since 2010. And you don't check um, your Twitter mentions either. No, I haven't for like something I found years. out after wasting my time sending you nice messages about hoop collective I, I, episodes. I'm sure, I'm sure some people have. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I didn't reply to you. You missed the nice um, ones too. But yeah, I mean that's just wild to me. I, I mean I know fans are ridiculous, but the idea of being mad at a reporter for leaving as well is just uh, sort of surprising. And it also became this. Um, sneer at you that you were just LeBron's shadow and it ignored the the awards that you won and the work you were doing and um, was a very strange thing, I think, compared to when we understand that there are lots of reporters who end up kind of running parallel to the career of a legendary player. Well, here's the nuance. The nuance is, like, I accepted the job. I knew what was probably going to happen, Okay. Um, the, the nuance that was frustrating was the concept that I was like somehow in his entourage. And look, if right. you're going to be in his entourage, then at least you're in his entourage. You know, you know, then you're getting the stories, then you're getting, you know, all the benefits. And so people may think that you're a sellout, but hey, you got something for selling out. When the reality was I was never further from him, so to speak. Right. During that year, it improved a lot. Every, you know, things got a lot better. But like for that year, I was getting roasted for like being his entourage or whatever. But I would ne- was never farther away. And that was what was difficult. Um, but look, that comes with the job. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, we're, we're living on parallel tracks. Like when the when the heat and came into town for that return game, like they snuck in and got out as fast as they could and had extra security. Same. You didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I did. I, oh, I, you did. I had, they really, I was to say, I could see a lot of empty popcorn containers heading your way. People were actually spitballs. They were using oh, nice. spitballs. At That's me. good. Um, great, great. And I had, you know, I had, the, you know, because I knew all the security guards at the arena because I'd been there, I'd worked there, right. you know, for seven years with... And they what just, a wild they took a little bit of extra side effect uh, yeah. to being a sports reporter. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Oh, my God. This is like inside the actor's studio. <laughs> um, bollocks. Bollocks. What an amazing word. And I will admit, when I looked up the etymology and the actual meaning, I did not know this. I thought it was just sort of like an equivalent of saying shit. But it means testicles from 1744. From the Old English for testicles. Uh, in British slang, also started to become just nonsense in 1919. So when people are yelling nonsense, they're really yelling balls, which is great. Um, interesting aside on this. So the relative severity of uh, various different kinds of profanities as perceived by the British public was studied by the Broadcasting Standards Commission, Independent Television Commission, BBC, and the Advertising Standards Authority. And this jointly commissioned research was published in December 2000 to see, uh, you know, exactly how people rated all the different expletives. Bollocks was in eighth position between prick and an arsehole. <laughs> and uh, the word balls was all the way down in 22nd place. So bollocks more severe than balls. And 25% of the people surveyed thought bollocks should not be broadcast at all. Only 11% thought it could acceptably be broadcast before the national 9 p.m. watershed on television. And 25% regarded bollocks as very severe. 
Just 8% considered it not swearing. So I love that your favorite word is a very severe, per the British folks, swear word. Testicles! Balls! Bollocks. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is mully grubs. A fit of the blues or intestinal pain. From the 1590s, mully grubs. Uh, there are many spellings. Mully grums, moldy grubs, murly grubs, muddy grubs, mully grumps, murdy grups. And etymologists say that shows very plainly that there's no real etymology behind mulligrums. Uh, the low spirits, bad temper, bad mood word first appears at the end of the 16th century. And some suggest potentially a relationship between the slightly earlier noun megrims, which means melancholy or low spirits. Uh, but a quarter of a century later, around 1625, mulligrubs meant diarrhea or stomach ache, and then a few years later became an ill-tempered or surly person and sort of settled in around a fit of the blues. Uh, this is interesting, too, from WordDetective.com. So uh, they they think that megram word that it was associated with was a severe headache, so sort of the roots of migraine sounds a little bit uh, like it might be tied to it. Um, but it's also just a, a folk term in Britain and the U.S. And the Dictionary of American Regional English is most popular in southern U.S. with all those different versions that I told you about, mully grubs and muddy grubs and mully grumps. Um, but one notation in that American uh, Regional English Dictionary uh, compares it to a disease known as the collywobbles. Uh, which is just the same as mully grubs by an even weirder name. And if I remember correctly, I believe collywobbles was a previous word of the week, or at least was going to be. I definitely saw the word collywobbles and loved it. Um, but uh, basically pain in the stomach, collywobbles, similar to mully grubs, but mully grubs can also just mean a funk. So in a sentence, a true sentence, unfortunately, the vibes lately have been far from immaculate. Feels like everyone I know is suffering from the mully grubs. I'm going to start saying that now instead of I'm in a funk. I'm going to say I've got the mully grubs. Now let's get back to the interview. So yeah. you end up covering his time in Miami. Um, you sort of leave the LeBron beat, as it were, in 2012. And you go to New York City where you live and cover all NBA-related things while still doing a lot of LeBron stories and such. You moved to Omaha, Nebraska in 2014. This is fascinating to me. You, your wife's family is there. I believe she has her law practice there. Yes, she's works. For, she's a partner in a law firm. Yeah, here, yeah, partner in a law firm. Um, so you choose actively to be somewhere that's nowhere near a team. Um, yeah. How do you balance that? And how did you decide? I still want to work as an NBA reporter, but I will make things a little tougher myself. Um, in terms of travel and everything, because I want, I guess, some sort of balance or what what draws you to be located out of there and have to move around from Omaha? Yeah, here's why. So um, my, you know, for a long time, the one of the centers of the NBA was Cleveland, right? LeBron was there, you know, so many big games. And then it wasn't. Then the Cavs were a barren wasteland for four years, right? And then it was in Miami. Then, like, you know, half of the big games in the NBA took place in Miami. And then LeBron left, and Miami was a barren wasteland, you know, relatively speaking, uh, for four or five years. Uh, I didn't go back for a long time. Um, then it was Cleveland again. And then he left Cleveland and went to L.A., and Cleveland was a barren wasteland. Uh, the couple of years I lived in New York, I was still on the road over 100 nights a year. 
So the thing about it is, if you're going to be chasing the center of the NBA, you're always going to be chasing. Right. You're never going to be able to say, this is where I'm going to be. Even if you were in Golden State for the last seven years, there was like two and a half years there where the Warriors were non-factors. You know, because of injuries and you know, just like ask my two... buddy Nick Friedel. <laughs> right. Like look at Nick. Nick lived in Chicago, then San Francisco, then Brooklyn. And if Durant had gotten traded to um to Phoenix, he might be in Phoenix right now. I don't know. Right. And so I was like, I can't keep chasing the center of the NBA when the center when the NBA is always moving. You are gonna have to move around covering the NBA no matter what. And we had new technology that was being developed that could allow you to do TV from home, which in 2014 was a little bit cutting edge. Now it's basic. Now there's hundreds of ESPN and people and other TV people for all the networks who have it in their house. I was one of the first people to have a setup in my house. And so um, I just wanted to put down roots somewhere. And, you know, I, you know, people who don't know anything about Omaha, they probably laugh at it. And I mean, you know, my bosses, when I, when I brought this idea to them, they thought I was certifiably insane. Um, <laughs> but uh, the truth You're is just ahead of the people, game. <laughs> most people don't know where I live. I mean, I don't make this, right. I don't, I don't hide it, but um, right. most people don't know where I live. And Which is um, good. Yeah. So you can operate uh, travel. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple journalism questions. We only have so much time left, so hopefully we can get to some of these. Um, I was fascinated and we don't need to go through it. I'll play a little bit of the sound, but uh, you became a meme and a clip of you talking about hinting at something that might happen with the jazz became the biggest story on Twitter and social media for a bit. It was a trade yesterday between the Utah Jazz and the Brooklyn Nets. It's a very strange trade. Very strange trade. I don't even know if I'm you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah. I, I have like, coaches, I've, I've uh, notifications uh -huh. They up, traded Royce O'Neal, who is a role-playing yeah. three-point defensive shooter, to Brooklyn for a future first-round draft pick. And so you're going, well, what do you care about Royce O'Neal? Why does that matter? Why would the Jazz do that? Why would the Jazz, who have two stars on their roster, mm -hmm. Take a player who's one of their starters and best defensive players and trade him in a salary dumping move. Why would they do that? Why did <laughs> Quinn Snyder walk away from that job? And you say, when Danny Ainge, last time he hired a coach, which was Brad Stevens, what happened that same year? What did he do when he hired this young coach who'd never coached the NBA before? And he gave him a long contract, gave Brad Stevens a six-year contract. Will Hardy, who they just hired, they gave him a five-year contract. Very rare for a first-time head coach to get a five-year contract. Why? What's going on in Utah? And what you ended up revealing after the fact is that you were in part inspired to be vague in that moment because, first of all, you didn't know for sure that Rudy Gobert was getting traded. But secondarily, you knew that if you even hinted at it using specific kinds of words, your statements would be aggregated by papers everywhere, by websites everywhere, and that you would give yourself hours and hours of work that would ultimately be leading up to the real news, which was going to come, but wasn't there yet. And I wonder in general how aggregation has affected your work and your decision-making, understanding the way websites might take little clips or snippets and, and treat them a certain way. It's completely changed the way I deal with NBA players because I now am way, way, way more sensitive to uh, what can happen to their words and totally guilty of it many times in my career. 
of pulling one thing the player says out of six, six paragraphs mm-hmm. and making it a headline. Um, probably will be guilty of it again, although I really try to avoid it. Um, and look, sometimes it's warranted because some of that is news judgment. Sometimes you listen to a player answer 11 questions and his answer on the seventh question could be really important. So there's all these shades of gray in there. But, um, you know, it, it's happened to me so many times that I can now understand what uh, someone like LeBron goes through. And again, I admit I have aggregated LeBron. You know, it wasn't called that because, you know, I, you know, but I have absolutely been guilty of that. And yeah. um, so I so completely... you, you report what they yeah. say differently and within a certain context or in ways that will will hopefully prevent that aggregation from. I out of try very I, I'm way more cognizant again, admitting that I am not perfect and will never be. I am way more cognizant of trying to keep the context. Yeah. And, uh, tr- you know, trying to I mean, it's you ha- there's a certain thing you have to do if a player answers a question in 200 words and you, you know, you can't put 200 words there. The reader will be like, I can't take it. You know, you have to, again, there's a nuance there, but like it's completely changed the way. I mean, there's a chance, Sarah, that something that I said during this podcast will get aggregated that will cause (laughs) me a headache. And I know that when I'm asked to do interviews, I know that I'm like, well, probably going to face a blowback for something I right. said here. Right. And, um, you know, you just, you know, like, not that I'm comparing myself to like what an NBA player is. <laughs> it's no, why NBA it's... players don't like the media at times and at times like just ignore things because they know that they, they, this happens. I totally understand it. Um, and that's, it's changed the way I look at the business. Yeah. I'm curious because you also sort of shrugged your shoulders at the meme and said Twitter's not real world, which is true, and that it didn't have a big effect on your life. It was funny and people said nice things, but I think there was a hint of this meme of me pointing is getting a lot more attention than the work that I do. And the same goes for you reporting on J.R. Smith throwing a bowl of soup and the fallout from that and all anyone gave a shit about was what kind of soup it was. And so knowing it was tortilla, you held on to that like an oath. I will not reveal <laughs> that it was tortilla and a silent protest for the stupidity of the industry I'm in. And and are there moments where you get it, you understand what drives clicks and interest and gossip and the tea, but it's frustrating because the hard work goes into the stuff that maybe doesn't get all that. I just think it was more that I know that it can be the exact opposite. Um, I know that something like that can have, you know, the double-edged sword. That's one day social media smiles on you. Right. And and the next day it can, uh, it can absolutely sink its teeth into you. And so part of that was, you know, <laughs> I'm a little bit desensitized to it either way. I mean, I let's be clear. I had a lot of fun telling that jazz story. You know, one of the reasons why I launched into that is because I liked the concept. I, I liked telling the story. Yeah. Um, and telling it like I, a I, podcast, you said. Yeah, you had, had, you had a, space and time on the show yeah. to tell it a certain way and to engage people differently than the sort of quick first take isms that we're so used to, which is part of what drove it was the mysteriousness of your telling. Um, and everybody just heard it. it. It was it was dramatic. It was uh, it had us on the edge of our seats. And of course, it turned out uh, turned out to be true. 
What's the best part of breaking news and the worst part? Because I imagine sometimes you're breaking news that, that is bad for someone, and that would be hard for me as someone who's very empathetic, even in, in tough times for, for players or coaches or whatever. And also there's always a fear that your source is leading you astray, or maybe they think they're right, and then you end up looking wrong. Or maybe your colleagues challenge your source, and then you end know. up being right, and that's complicated too. I mean, there's a lot of complications in such a ultimately sometimes silly game. You know, the term breaking news, it, it's so amorphous. Like, if you say um, player A is being traded to team X, and you're the first person to say it, that is breaking news. Right. For sure. We all agree on that. And by the way, that's a lot of times really, really tough to do. To You know, sometimes you fall backwards into a, a, a transactional news break like that. But most of the time, it is the product of a lot of work. And uh, sometimes over the course of months. And that makes it extremely challenging. Um, but there's other ways, to, you know, what is defined as breaking news? If you say that, you know, there's a, there's a chance that the Lakers are going to make a deal using their draft picks. And 11 days later, they make the deal. Did you break news? Right. You know, you put, like, you put some things together and used context clues, but you didn't really right. tell people what happened and what would happen. Right. Here. But 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 what if you did? But what if like what if you did say something like like what if you said, hey, uh, I think and I'm just trying. I mean, I could use examples here, Sarah, but I'm trying to get away from it because right. then I'll get aggregated. But like <laughs> what if I said what if I knew that there was a there was that there was a player on a team right now that wasn't happy and had already privately asked for a trade. And I said on November 1st, you know, it, it wouldn't be stunning to me if player A ends up asking for a trade or ends up being available at the trade deadline when I know that that's already happened. Right. Is that breaking news? Mm. Because it's telling you something that you don't know, but I don't frame it player A has asked for a trade, Yeah. right? Yeah. So is that breaking news or not? Because um, I don't know. And so like to say, like people ask about breaking news. Like I feel like I'm quote unquote breaking news all the time. I feel like I'm telling people about what's going on in the league. And like, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't always come to pass, but like a lot of times it does. And you talk about something in October that takes place in February. Did you break the news? I right. mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, you know, and that's what I sort of focus on. I, I focus on trying to tell you what's going on in the league. Yeah, just keep people uh, informed whether or not they consider it breaking or otherwise. It's a it's a right. running so commentary like, that yeah. sometimes involves looking ahead, basically. I know. So, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's amorphous. Um, yeah. Uh, but I will say this, you know, breaking news is really, really hard. And it's yeah, most so of, much work. Most of the time, it's not fun. Yeah, it doesn't um, sound fun to me. Uh, I respect the people who do it, and it can be very lucrative, but it's it's real tough. Um, okay, a couple more quick ones. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about the NBA in particular, in comparison to some other leagues of late, um, is more players willing to speak up about mental health issues and that creates a very difficult thing, I think, for reporters who are used to this being able to report on a, a broken ankle or a sore shoulder. How have you dealt with the sort of pressure or need to understand mental health versus mental wellness? 
um, people's baselines where they're actually struggling versus um, incapable of playing and maybe not fit to play like that. It, it's it between Ben Simmons and Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan. There are so many more players talking about it. That's a new uh, element to your job, I would think. I got a crash course in it when I was covering the Cavs back in the 2000s. And anybody who knows anything about it will know the player I'm talking about. But I'm not going to say the player's name because, again, I don't want to get aggregated. But um, there would be times when this player would be having challenges yeah. after games and for all of us to see. And there were times when the player was missing practices. There were times when the player was missing flights. And there were times when, like, they couldn't get the player to leave the locker room. Hmm. He And we were all there. We all saw it. Do we report on this? It was affecting the team, right? Like, the team was having difficulty managing this, but it's not a sprained ankle. Uh, and it was a real difficult thing that I didn't know what to do. And so players opening up about it is very brave. Um, but once a player is opened up about it, um, I think that, you know, they, 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 I think they definitely help people who are in the same situation. But from a media standpoint, it makes it difficult. When you hear about a player who talks about having struggles, when, when you openly are seeing the player struggling, like, how do you handle that you know how do you report yeah. about that right it's um it's a it's something that we're still learning about so i respect kevin and damar for talking about it so much um but it's a it's it's a real difficult thing for for those of us in the in the in the journalism industry especially since we are so often uh, we are so often need to evaluate performance it's a big right. part of our job Right. And that's one of the things we've I've talked about with other guests and I've even, you know, talked with Reali and others when we were tackling stuff specifically around Ben Simmons on Around the Horn is when we talk about someone being clutch or good under pressure or any of these things, we're ultimately talking about their mental baseline or their mental wellness in those moments and how they're able to process things. And very often for athletes, that's not by choice or training or practice. It's just a, a real lucky spin of the dice that their brain functions and maintains some some calmness during those stretches and there are other people who are perhaps not quite well suited for the stresses of fame and life in the spotlight and and a billion dollar industry that depends on them showing up and playing well and those conversations are very tricky to have because we're not treating those athletes but they also become increasingly more sort of necessary to at least try to address so that it isn't a binary of that person shouldn't play or that person sucks because he says he's not doing well. Um, and the accusations and the, and the guessing at everything that comes from a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, if you watch a player who struggles in tough playoff games and you go, look, he doesn't perform well in those situations. Like that can be a very fair observation. Right. Um, yeah. But um, it's and not sort of the necessary same. in the business. Right. Um, right. And if you see a guy out there who, his, you know he's had knee surgery and he can't run, 
you say, boy, uh, his knee is killing not, him. Yeah, and not it, the same guy after that surgery. And Right, and, and the portrayal is completely different. Completely different, right? yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's going to be fascinating, I think, the more we go forward. All right, we're out of time, but you do have to do the one thing that nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition this time because we didn't have time for both. It's the LeBron James speed round. If you had to put all of your life savings on the team that LeBron would end up with after the Lakers, assuming this tenure there ends, where are you putting your money? I only see him as a Cavra Laker. Okay. Because so. you had said maybe Dallas because he likes Luca so much. Yeah, we him. were like, you know, if you're just spitballing to have fun, like, you know. Right. Where could he, you know, possibly go? Like, you know, I mean, I would never say never on anything. But if you're asking me to, you know, to make a projection, I can only see him in those two places. On another podcast, you said the one question you like to ask LeBron is, would you rather win another title or play with your son, Bronny? What What do you think his answer would be? I think it would be playing with his son. I don't think I, I don't think LeBron. I mean, LeBron wants to win every game, just to be clear. But I think in terms of legacy, I don't think LeBron feels like he has to accomplish anything. More, he sure I think. doesn't. Yeah. yeah, playing with his son is a whole new accomplishment and right, unbelievable sure. thing to right. see. Talk about something for legacy, my right? God. Right. Add something that hasn't been done. Um, does the one and done change affect whether Bronny will be available sooner or is that going into play, uh, when he already would have been? Um, it, it, I'm not even a hundred percent sure that the one and done is going to get through on this CBA. Okay. And I'm also not sure that it would go into effect fast enough to make a difference for Bronny. But I would just say this, um, I've watched Bronny play since he was 14. I love the way he plays the game. Um, he has worked so hard on himself. He had a pretty significant knee injury that ruined his sophomore season. Uh, I think he had a torn meniscus. He like missed his sophomore season, so he's already had to deal with injury. Let's just watch him and let him go. Let's not like say, "Oh, could he be in the draft next year?" Yeah. Could he be in the draft. In so two hard years? not to when um, I mean, it's not well, like LeBron did it on purpose, but he has no, put a but, bit of a timeline on it because now we're like, "Well, you have to get there fast enough for your dad to still I know, play." Like, I know. I don't <laughs> like LeBron can do whatever he wants. I, I, I felt a certain way about that. Like, you know, for example, like when I was covering LeBron, a junior LeBronny, um, you know, he they they forbid him from talking to the media. Which right. I get, um, especially for LeBron. Like, I understand why he had that rule for his son. Um, but so I remember going to one of his games and like, okay, he can't talk to the media. That's understood. But then camera crews from LeBron's company, from uh, from Uninterrupted or Spring Hill, whatever you want to call it, like, were following him out to the car. Like, he had a camera crew following yeah. him with yeah. a – and I was like, well <laughs> – and he would say, Wait well, that's just me being a dad with a video camera on my shoulder. It just happens to be a fully stocked production company video camera. <laughs> um, all right. Last question for you. What does a post LeBron NBA look like? What's the biggest difference? Um, we're going to have to retrain the fan. Uh, the NBA is in a absolutely amazing place right now. The quality of basketball is just so much better than it was even seven or ten years ago. Sarah, if you would go back and look at the quote-unquote great LeBron games from like 2005, 6, 7, 
Like, you will be like, really? This was just considered, I mean, like, he was good, but like, the league was so much less skilled. Yeah. Um, but we know that fans, especially the casual fan, which makes up the biggest chunk of the fan base, they have been trained. They have been trained that we watch Steph Curry and we watch LeBron James and we watch Kevin Durant. They are going to have to be trained to say, hey, let's watch Trey Young. Let's watch Luka Doncic. Let's watch Victor Wembyama. John Morant. Yeah. So, John Morant. I mean, definitely. Like, thank God ESPN and uh, TNT are putting John on television more. Like, the, the, the Grizzlies were like the best, most entertaining thing going last year. We couldn't get him on TV. Yeah. And then, and then ESPN did this big blowout where we spent this whole day in Memphis and Malika Andrews took her show there and they did this whole giant day to promote the Grizzlies. And then John got hurt and didn't play in the game. It was just bad luck. So, um, yes, we need, we have to retrain all of the fans and this happens in all sports, but it's particularly a thing in basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you ask that question now versus even just a couple years ago, there was a lot of concern. And now people are looking around and they're like, damn, there's some really, really, really exciting young talent and it's going to be okay. Um, but if there are a couple years where we get a Bron, Bronny and LeBron combo, good Lord, people's heads are going to explode. Uh, Brian, you know what? I wanted to talk more about you and less about LeBron, but I blame you. Um, it's your own fault, and you're a great people storyteller. <laughs> you have LeBron. much to say about him. Uh, maybe down the road, I'll have you back on, and we'll have a completely LeBron-free episode. We'll see if we can pull it off. Uh, thank you for coming me. on. I, right. I appreciate Take it. Take care. Thanks for having me. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll tell you what to read, what to watch, what to listen to, whatever's on my mind. And on my mind today, I've just learned that Leslie Jordan, hilarious comedian and actor, best known for me by Will and Grace, but also during the, the uh, pandemic and in recent years, really took over social media and brought so much joy. He passed away in a car accident. And just go watch anything Leslie Jordan. Just pull up his social media, pull up old Will and Grace clips. I promise that you'll smile. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions, questions, or more. You should always follow or subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. Maybe you'll end up on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 